Late Night Council is a production of Council Communications. This is Late Night Council. This is bigger. This is very big. There's definitely something here. Apparently, it's a big deal. It's all over the news. It's a real thing. A radio signal from another world. That's my grandpa. Wow, your story is very compelling. Your chance to make history. That's pretty cool, I guess. Give it to me straight. John, you're in charge. Uh, Welcome to Late Night Council. Great to have you with us. Uh, it's going to be open line, open topic, all the way to 11 o'clock tonight, as it usually is. We do the Ask the Pastor format. For those of you that maybe have not heard this show in a long time, maybe the last time you heard it was when it was on conventional radio. Now, of course, we're online, and it is open line, open topic, whatever you want to talk about. This is going to be a different show tonight. This is going to be a very different show. In fact, you might not even like it tonight. Well, John, why are you saying that? Way to scare away the listeners. Well, I do this show for one reason, okay? I do this show for one reason. And this sounds spooky, and I hope it doesn't sound manipulative. I hope it doesn't sound, oh, I don't know, sensational in any way. The only reason I do this show, well, there's a few of them, but the biggest one, the one that's like the first five reasons I do this show, is because I really feel like God wants me to do it. And if you've listened to Ask the Pastor, if you listen to Late Night Council, you know that I preach and I teach and I live that you can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think people that just, you know, they kind of follow Christ or they're kind of interested in him because he's the head of their religion or whatever, and they don't have a personal relationship with him, man, that couldn't cut it for me. I I, got to have more than that. If you expect me to show up, you know, in a building with people singing music that's boring and, you know, listening to somebody go through some type of meaningless ritual that hardly anybody can understand, and if it's all about, you know, maybe recognizing history and tradition, that I don't know about you, that, that might be good enough for you. I don't know. For me, that's not good enough. I got to know God's real. I got to know that he hears my prayers. I got to know that when I when I talk to him, I'm going to get some results. And uh, a, a follower of Christ, and the ones that I see in the Bible, when I read about the priorities that followers of Christ had in the Bible, okay, it seems as though their whole life was Christ. They, le- they lived, eat, ate, slept, breathed, uh, planned their futures, their priorities was all around their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the ones that saw him before he, you know, uh, died and rose again, in particular, the ones that saw him after he rose again, they would have had a, a powerful impact. But Jesus even said about his followers that would come in generations, he said to the disciples, you know, bless you because, you know, you have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. I've never seen Christ physically. I've never had a supernatural vision of him. And I've talked to people who have said they've had these type of visions where they literally encountered the risen Christ. They talked to him and they received encouraging words from him or direction. That's never happened to me. So why do I believe? Well, I got started in my belief because it was brought up that way. Okay. 
and uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and, you know, the popular atheists of the day, they would tell you that that is the only reason people believe because, you know, they're brought that way. It's in the brought up that way and it's in the culture that they were brought up in. But anybody that's brought up in the faith, you know, you either reject it or you you investigate to see whether it's real. Because as we grow older and we mature, hopefully, you know, some of us never mature, but in this way, hopefully we do. Hey, I don't want to believe in something just because my parents believed in it. I got to know this is real. And uh, and I'm, I'm giving you a bit of my personal story here now. The main reason I believe the claims of Christ, the main reason I believe that the Bible is true. Now, I've done all the scientific investigation, and to my understanding, to my satisfaction, it's credible. I've been doing talk radio, doing Ask the Pastor type shows for 33, 34 years. I still don't have all the answers, okay? I have a lot of answers. I can answer a lot of questions. But there's been many times when I've been stumped. And that's never discouraged by faith because I've always I've always come to the realization that just because I don't have all the answers doesn't mean there isn't somebody who does. And when I dig deep enough, I find those answers and they are satisfying to me. But that's not enough either. It's not enough just to have all the evidence point to, yes, there is a God. And yes, he took on human flesh. He took on human form so that he could have a relationship with us. And yes, his words when he said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, those are true I don't believe those just because, you know, it can stand up under scientific scrutiny and, and sociological scrutiny. Here's the, here's the number one, two, three, four, and five reasons I believe the claims of the Bible, and uh, my life is devoted to uh, spreading the message of Christ and going online and paying all the fees and doing everything I got to do to get the message out, even if I don't have a platform that's reaching 75,000 people a week, as it was when I was on CFRA, what keeps me going? I'll tell you what keeps me going. I have seen the radical transformation that takes place in people's lives when they put their faith and their trust in Christ, when they confess their sins to him, when they ask him to come into their life and to make things right. I have seen, and this sounds, you know, well, I hope it sounds eloquent, but I don't want it to be just for eloquence sake. I have seen thieves become honest. One of the stark, starkest examples of that is a, of a guy that many of you that are listening may have remembered, uh, Ernie Hollins. Ernie Hollins was a convict who spent over 29 years in prison, who gave his life to Jesus Christ. This guy was, and most of the crimes he committed were theft. And when he came out of uh, uh, the prison, a, 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 a follower of Christ took him into his home. This guy owned a hardware store. He put Ernie in charge of the till. Okay? He's in charge of keeping track of the money. Such was the transformation in his life that this guy that owned the hardware store believed in the transformation that Christ did in Ernie's life to the degree that he was able to trust him running the cashier. And Ernie would tell that story, and, of course, he'd tell it way better than, you know, anybody uh, could. And, and that's just one example. I've seen adulterers and philanderers become devoted husbands and devoted wives. I've seen greedy people become generous beyond imagination. I've seen selfish people become humble. All these things that, you know, egomaniacs who they, you know, all they think about is, is, is how can they help one another? How can, they, how can they do good deeds and not let anybody find out about it? To me, that's, that's, that's the biggest miracle. The biggest miracle I've seen is in the transformation of lives. And I'm telling you, when you get to see that firsthand, when you get to work with people, when you're part of communicating that message, 
And before people make that commitment to Christ, they ask a lot of questions. They hang out with you. They tend, in my experience, a lot of them, you know, they'll, they'll go to my church for a while and, and they'll, they'll check out to see, you know, are these people really real? Is this a cult? Is this, you know, love the music. It's a lot of fun here, but there's no way this could be as great as what they're all talking about. And, and most of the people I've seen and most of the, the lives that I've seen transformed, that's usually the pattern. Although there's delightful variances in that that make me believe that you've heard the term, God works in mysterious ways. Well, sometimes they're not always mysterious. In fact, the more you read the Bible, the more you're going to find that he's not as mysterious as people think he is. In fact, he's mysterious to people who don't know him that well. You can know the ways of God, what his priorities are, how he works, okay? It's in the Bible. Now, that behooves people that follow Christ to be able to communicate biblical truth in a way that is, you know, relevant and understandable. And uh, I, I told you this was going to be a really different show tonight, really different. I want to read to you the account of, oh, I think, and, and you know, if you, if you know the name, some of you may not even know the name, but I think that Amy Semple McPherson was probably the most powerful female uh, 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 voice for Christ in the 20th century. I would put Mother Teresa, who I have profound respect for, who had a totally different ministry than Amy Semple McPherson. I would put Mother Teresa in my personal list of the most powerful women of God of the 20th century. I would put uh, uh, Mother Teresa as, as number two next to Amy. Some of you haven't even heard of Amy. I think it's pretty safe to say before I go into this story that I'm going to read tonight. I've never done this on, on Ask the Pastor. I've never done this before. I never felt led to. But I started this little rant by telling you the only reason I'm on the air is because I feel I'm being obedient to my Savior. And I know there's all sorts of people that listen to this broadcast, okay? Numbering, you know, it's up in the thousands now, okay, of people that tune into this thing. And, uh, if you call this a performance, that's your business. I could call it a performance, but it's a performance for one. And it's what I do, I do to please God. And uh, I don't mind doing ridiculous things. I don't mind doing radical things. I don't mind doing things that cut against the grain and cause people to, uh, wow, John, you know, what are you thinking here? If I really believe it's God, I will go ahead. Now, there's many times where I've missed it. It wasn't God. It was just maybe my imagination. But I've followed those inklings enough that, you know, if you take three or four times where you miss it, it's worth it for that one time when it was bang on and things happen. And I don't know who this is for tonight, but we could go the full two hours like this. Now, that's what I'm going to be doing tonight. I've got a couple of things that I want to read to you. And, of course, I'll make it as exciting as I can. I, if you've heard this broadcast before, you know I believe it's a sin to bore people especially when it comes to young people in our North American culture, more people turn their back on God and move away from him because of boredom than just about any other reason. The way Christ is presented in, 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 in so many churches is so boring and so irrelevant that kids, when they're about the age of 13, 14, 15, they say, man, I'm booking out of here. Forget it. Okay. So if I enter into this, I'm, I, I've got a passion to make it be alive as possible. Okay. And uh, uh, I, I hope the story comes alive because... I see in this woman, Amy Semple McPherson, and it's easy. If you've never heard of her, from about 19, oh, I'd say 1918 to about 1945, that's a good 20, 25 years. She held the media spotlight in North America 
in a higher profile, in a more popular way than Billy Graham ever did at his peak. And that's not taking anything away from Billy Graham. I have nothing but respect for Billy Graham. Billy Graham, uh, for Billy Graham, he is one of my heroes. The guy's character is impeccable. I think he's been one of the most virtuous and and, and rock-solid voices of integrity for the uh, gospel of Christ and for the message of Jesus that that easily I've ever seen in my lifetime. But when it comes to females... And being able to be a media darling where even the minutest details of her life was carried on front pages of the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. And people have forgotten because it was 100 years ago now. Amy Semple McPherson was amazing. And her story is worth hearing. It is really, really, really worth hearing. And you're going to hear about it tonight. Now, also, also... (laughs) um. I'm taking a few liberties tonight. I'm pushing the envelope maybe a little bit further than I have since we started broadcasting, you know, online, okay? Oh, I haven't even given out the phone number tonight. That just shows you how excited I am to do what I want to do tonight. And I need to let you know, no matter what you hear coming from me tonight... The format stays. It is open line, open topic. You can interrupt what I'm doing at any time. You can bring up anything. I am going to do my best to give you the biblical perspective on whatever you bring to the program. I'm going to give you the faith perspective on whatever you bring on. Uh, But there is some things I want to get across tonight. And if you enjoy it, you can just sit back and listen. Or if there's something that you really want to get out there, or you maybe want to challenge some of the stuff I'm presenting to you, or maybe you've got a better perspective that can, you know, uh, help our listeners even more. Then you need to call 343-700-4390 if you're in the Capital Region, okay? 343-700-4390. That's the Capital Region number, Ottawa, Gatineau, and, and the metro area here in Canada's Capital. Capital. If you're calling, if you're calling from Blow Me Down, Newfoundland, if you're calling from... Hicksville, Arkansas. There's a real place called Hicksville. If you're calling from Homerville, Georgia, and they play more than baseball there. If you're calling from Knob Lick, Missouri, we got a 1-800 line for you. 1-844-562-4766. Okay? We pay for it. Okay? It's toll-free. 1-844-562-4766. Whatever you want to talk about, you give me a call. I'm just warning you, though, it is the Ask the Pastor format, and I'm going to stick to that as best I can throughout the evening. Are you ready? You know what? Maybe we'll, maybe we'll play a tune here and uh, uh, hear, uh, hear from our sponsors for a second, just for a second, because I, I want to kind of set this up so it's, uh, uh, um, um, you, you know, you can really sink your teeth in tonight. It's going to be really, really cool. And uh, uh, hang around, okay? Going to hear from our sponsors. I might play a tune or not. I don't know. We'll see. It's... I told you it's going to push the envelope a little bit further because it's my birthday today. Yes, it is. It's my birthday today. Don't call in just to wish me happy birthday. I don't want you calling in unless you got something to contribute to the show, okay? I, I've gotten all kinds of birthday wishes from all over the planet all day on Facebook and Twitter and on email, and it's really nice, and I feel great, and that's great. Uh, but I, I may play. In fact, let's do that. You're going to hear from the sponsor, and then you're going to hear from one of my all fav- all-time favorite tunes. And you know what? It probably describes the impact of Amy Semple McPherson as well as any other tune I know out there, okay? You'll know, you'll know you're hearing it once it it happens. This is Late Night Council. Stay with us. Show me how the sun shines. Tell me about your heartache. Who could be so unkind? Do you dream to touch me? Smile. Just 
CMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. Come on, y'all. Somebody must have seen her marching up Main Street from the direction of the bank and the barbershop. She was a very young woman in a white dress, carrying a chair. Standing on the chair, she raised her long hands toward heaven as if calling for help. And then she did nothing. She closed her large, wide-set eyes and just stood there with her arms straight up like a statue of marble. 
Even with her eyes closed, Amy could feel the critical mass of the crowd when it grew to be 50 spectators gaping and hooting. The young woman opened her eyes and looked around her. People, she shouted, leaping off the chair. Come and follow me, quick. Hooking her arm through the back of the chair, she pushed through the crowd and started running down Main Street. The people chased her, boys first, then men and women. They followed her right through the open door of the Victory Mission. There was just enough room for all to be seated. Lock the door, she whispered to the usher. Lock the door and keep it locked till I get through. Amy Semple McPherson has been described as a woman born before her time. Actually, Amy was the spiritual pioneer who paved the way for so many that she should be considered largely responsible for the way millions demonstrate Christianity today. Amy defied all odds. Her life story portrays her as a woman alive and dramatic. There was nothing mellow about her. To her, a challenge was fair game to be taken and conquered. She rode on the wave of the media and actually directed its course. If publicity seemed bad, she hyped it further, smiling all the way. If everyone warned her against doing something, she was apt to do it. She was apt to do the opposite, refusing to bow to fear. In fact, there was nothing too radical for Amy Semple McPherson. Whatever it took to get the people, Amy did it. She sat with the publicans and the prostitutes, showing up in places where the average Christian was afraid to go. The poor, the common, and the rich all loved her for it, and they showed up at her meetings by the thousands. But of course, the religious hated her. When denominational politics seemed to hinder and wound so many ministers, Amy rarely gave them thought. She demolished religious seclusion and narrowness, seeming to almost pity those who were controlled by its grip. Amy set about building a ministry so vast and so great that even Hollywood came to take notes. In a time when women were only recognized as an accessory to ministry, Amy built Angelus Temple to include them. The temple was built and dedicated during the Depression and was an elaborate building that could seat 5,000 people when the building filled three times each Sunday. Amy ventured even further. She built the very first Christian radio station in the world and found one of the, founded one of the fastest-growing denominations today. Amy lived during the height of the Pentecostal movement that was full of the do's and don'ts of religion when women in general weren't accepted in ministry. And to make matters worse to the religious mindset of the day, she was divorced. Her life began in controversy and scandal. Amy was born to James Morgan and Mildred Minnie Kennedy on October the 9th, 1890, near Salford, Ontario. For those of you who don't know southern Ontario, that's just outside of Ingersoll, Ontario, down the London area. The only daughter of James and Mildred, Amy Elizabeth Kennedy, grew up in a town that roared with gossip because those who took issue with the circumstances surrounding her birth. Her father, age 50, married her mother Minnie when she was only 15 years old. Prior to their marriage, the orphaned Minnie had been a fervent laborer with the Salvation Army. Feeling the call to ministry, this is Amy McPherson's mother, she evangelized day and night in the cities throughout Ontario. Then she read in the paper one day about the Kennedys' need for a live-in nurse to care for the ailing Mrs. Kennedy, so she accepted the position and moved in with the family, setting her ministry aside. After Mrs. Kennedy's death, Minnie remained in the Kennedy home. Not long after, the older man asked Minnie to become his wife. The town roared with gossip, but James Kennedy simply let them talk. The day after their marriage, Minnie got down on her knees and prayed. 
she confessed that she had failed in her call to the ministry and asked God's forgiveness. Then she prayed, if you will only hear my prayer as you heard Hannah's prayer of old and give me a little baby girl, I will give her unreservedly into your service that she may preach the word I should have preached, fill the place I should have filled and live the life I should have lived in your service, O Lord hear and answer me. Soon Minnie was pregnant. She never doubted that she was carrying a girl. So everything she designed, bought, or received for the baby was pink. Then in answer to her prayers, a little girl was born on October 9th in the Kennedy's Canadian farmhouse near Salford. The Salvation Armyist, uh, the Salvationist from the Salvation Army came to visit the baby and brought with them the sad news that Catherine Booth, wife of the great General William Booth, had died Catherine had been the co-founder of the Salvation Army, and one of the visitors suggested that Amy could very well be her successor. Whatever plan God had for the child, it was especially clear to Minnie, after hearing these words, that Amy would eventually grow far beyond her expectations. When Amy was three weeks old, Minnie dedicated her to the Lord at a Salvation Army service. Her childhood was picture-perfect. She was raised as an only child on a large country farm in a rambling farmhouse with farm animals as playmates. She grew up with stories of Daniel in the lion's den, Joseph and Pharaoh and Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. By the time Amy was four, she could stand on a street corner in the middle of a drumhead and draw a huge crowd by reciting Bible stories. Amy was a spunky little girl. She was full of headstrong ideas. Nothing intimidated her except the realization that no matter where she was, God could see everything she was doing. Once while sick in bed, a hired man poked his head through her door, asking if he could do anything for her. Amy sighed in a spoiled way and said, I would like to hear the frogs sing. Do go down to the swamp and bring me three or four frogs and put them in a pail of water by my bed. So the man did he was told did he was told and about an hour later he came back into the room with a large pail complete with lilies and frogs but as he left for work he failed to hear Amy screaming for him to retrieve the frogs which had jumped out of the bucket and were now bouncing around the room it was Amy's mother Minnie who had to be the one to catch the slimy intruders as a young girl in school Amy was always in charge when other children teased her calling her a salvation army child Amy got angry But instead of fighting back, she would play along with him. In later years, it was just the sort of response that caused Amy's popularity to soar. Once when Amy was made fun of, instead of retaliating against her classmates, she got a box, a ruler, and a red tablecloth. Then she appointed a boy to carry a red flag and marched around banging on her box like a drum while singing at the top of her lungs. At first, the boys fell behind her, making fun of the march. But then they started to enjoy it. Soon the girls stepped in and joined her lively parade. And from that day forward, no one teased Amy about the Salvation Army. Her faith always was embraced and never repelled. When Amy was a young girl, she loved to watch her mother, who was the Sunday school superintendent at the Salvationist meetings. As soon as Amy came home back from church, she would gather up chairs, set them in a circle in a room, then she would imitate her mother by preaching to her imaginary crowd. In her school picture, Amy, then eight years old, is holding the class slate while sitting in the middle of the other students. The children on either side of the teacher took look noticeably angry in the picture. 
They look upset because before the picture was taken, an argument had broken out over who was going to hold the slate sign. But as they bickered, Amy suddenly jumped into the middle of the group and grabbed it. Then when the others tried to take it from her, the teacher corralled them all and seated them long enough to snap the photo. The photo serves as a somewhat of a prophetic snapshot of Amy Semple McPherson's future ministry. The children surrounding her sit aggravated by her bold, determined action. And there in the middle, between the protective legs of her teacher, sits Amy, full of joy and confidence in triumphant victory. Throughout her youth, Amy's dogmatic character began to service. She had a sportive, playful attitude towards authority. If you were chosen to be a leader over her, you would have to be impress- you would have to impressively prove you could do it before expecting any submission from her. Amy wasn't completely disrespectful or rebellious, and she never truly meant to be a challenge to authority. It was just that her leadership ability was so great that those around her were automatically challenged and left speechless. Even as a child, when Amy walked into a room, she would capture everyone's attention without having spoken one word. Some say Amy was a spoiled child, and that it was her father, James Kennedy, who spoiled her. James took great delight in this spunky little girl. Others say Amy simply wore her parents out with high spirits and creativity. But to them, Amy Elizabeth was an answer from God, and they treated her like a treasure. Minnie Kennedy watched over Amy like a hawk. She was a good mom to Amy. But learning to stand up to Minnie was no small feat. Just holding her own around Minnie served to groom Amy for answering the many hard questions that would come her way as a future Christian leader. Because of her zeal for life and emotional strength, Amy soon began to enjoy the applause. As a preteen, her dramatic personality became well-known in local village theater productions, and she was a popular orator in grammar school. At age 12, Amy won the silver medal for a speech that she presented at the Women's Christian Temperance Union in Ingersoll, Ontario, Canada. She would go on to complete, compete in London, Ontario, and win the gold medal in the same competition. By the time she was 13, Amy was a celebrated, outstanding public speaker. She was invited to entertain at church suppers, various organizations, Christmas auctions, festivals, picnics. The communities of Ingersoll and Salford soon realized that people would come from miles around to be entertained by this specially gifted little girl. But Amy's training in the Methodist church in Salford would soon cause her some confusion. Though the Methodists encouraged speech and entertainment within their building, they absolutely condemned movie theaters and plays outside of it. In fact, Amy had been led to believe that moving pictures were the most sinful thing ever created. So Amy grew up in a generation that believed in strict religious rules. Church authorities and others had solemnly warned her that if she was ever to visit a movie theater, Amy would end up in hell. Nevertheless, when she was invited to a movie, she consented to go. And when she did, she recognized several other members from her church. One was a Sunday school teacher. The hypocrisy of it all touched her deeply. When Amy entered high school in 1905, the Darwin theory had just been popularized. Suddenly, every new textbook was filled with Darwin's theory that claimed life on Earth began from an amoeba and then man, and that man was a cousin to a chimpanzee. Amy was shocked. Though she was not yet a born-again Christian, she had been raised on the Bible and was truly insulted by Darwin's claims. So she approached her science professor and gallantly questioned him on, questioned him on the matter as far as he was concerned, biological research had superseded ancient superstition. 
But Amy cornered the poor man to such a degree that he finally had to sidestep her, then handed her a library list to study. Amy accepted the challenge. Not only would she read these secular authors and their theories, but when she was finished, no one but those authors would know more on the subject of Darwin's theory than she did. This would become a pattern throughout her life. Amy was diligent and unbeatable. But in her reading, Amy decided that Darwin's theory had to be true. After all, the church no longer practiced what the Bible said. It seemed the church was only a social gathering for plays and entertainment, and there were no miracles being worked like those she read about in the Bible. So she began debating with visiting ministers and questioned why they preached if there were no miracles today. When questioned, one minister cleared his throat and explained how miracles had passed away, describing it as the cessation of charisma. Then when Amy challenged him with other scriptures, he finally told her, that these matters were completely over her head. The men obviously didn't know of Amy's determination. Another night after an evening church service, Amy challenged a visiting preacher in such a matter that her parents were mortified. If the Bible is true, why do our neighbors pay good tax money to tear down our faith? She asked the trembling minister. Again, Amy had the last word, but she was miserable because no one seemed to have the spiritual ammunition to address her confusion. Amy finally came to the conclusion that according to her beliefs, if portions of the Bible were no longer true, then none of the Bible could be true. She further reasoned that if there was a leak in one place, the whole thing should be thrown out. So she decided to become an atheist. Arriving home after this one last searing battle of words with the minister, Amy sprinted into her room, opened the shutters, peered out into the night, As she surveyed the magnificence of the stars, Amy was moved within herself. Someone had to have made the heavens, and she longed to know what or who. No more stories. No more hearsay. She wanted facts. So Amy prayed, Oh, God, if there be a God, reveal yourself to me. Two days later, God would answer that plea. Amy was a study in relaxed determination. At 17, she was a beautiful girl who seemed to have everything she wanted. Unlike the other girls in the district, she never spoke of marriage and children. She was very intelligent, and her family was financially comfortable. Her tailored clothes were stylish, and her parents adored her. She also had the ability to speak and capture an audience with a sentence or two, and had won every speaking competition she ever entered. She went around to dance halls, finding, it f- finding them full of church members. In fact, the first person who whirled her on the whirled her. On the dance floor was a Presbyterian minister, but more than ever, Amy needed the Lord, and soon she would find him. The day after Amy had prayed to God to reveal himself, she was driving home from school with her father. As they traveled down Main Street in Ingersoll, she noticed a sign in a storefront window that read, Holy Ghost Revival, Robert Semple, Irish evangelist. Amy had heard how these Pentecostal people fell on the floor and spoke in unknown languages. And she had heard the wild stories of their shouting and dancing. She was very curious. So the next evening, Amy's Christmas program at rehearsal, after that, James Kennedy took his daughter to the mission. They sat on the back row. At the meeting, Amy was all eyes. She was amused as she saw certain townspeople singing and shouting hallelujah with their hands uplifted. What a show, she thought. Had she not been an atheist, Amy thought... She would shout herself. She was thoroughly enjoying this naive show from her intellectual tower. Then Robert Semple walked into the room. 
At that moment, everything changed for Amy. Semple was about six foot two inches tall, blue-eyed, curly brown hair, and had a wonderful sense of humor. Years later, Amy would still affectionately go on about his blue eyes as having the light of heaven. An Irish Presbyterian, Semple left his homeland by boat to sail to New York. He then traveled overland to Toronto, Canada, and then to Chicago, Illinois. It was in 1901 that the Pentecostal manifestation of speaking in other tongues spread from Topeka, Kansas to Chicago, and it was here in Chicago that Robert Semple first spoke in other tongues. While working at a clerk at Marshall Field's department store in the city, God called him into the ministry. He became a very successful evangelist who was known throughout the northern United States and Canada, and now he had come to Amy's hometown. When Semple walked into the little mission, it seemed that Amy's whole world stood still. Reverend Robert Semple strode to the pulpit and opened his Bible to the second chapter of Acts. Then he repeated a simple command, repent, repent. Amy began to squirm uneasily. Every time Semple spoke, his words pierced her heart like an arrow. Later, Amy would say, I had never heard such a sermon. Using the Bible as a sword, he cut the whole world in two. The young evangelist saw no middle ground between serving the world and serving God. If you loved one, then you couldn't love the other. You were either for or against him. It was as simple as that. Amy hung on every word. Then the young evangelist turned his head toward heaven and began to speak in tongues. As she watched, his face seemed to glow with an inner light. As Semple spoke, Amy could understand perfectly what was being said. It was the voice of God shouting, shouting himself, showing himself to her, answering her prayer. From the moment I heard that young man speak with tongues to this day, I have never doubted for the shadow of a second that there was a God and that he had shown me my true condition as a poor, lost, miserable, hell-serving sinner. Three days later, Amy stopped her carriage in the middle of a lonely road, lifted her hands toward heaven, and cried out to God for mercy. Then suddenly, as she writes it, the sky was filled with brightness, the trees, the fields, the little snowbirds flitting to and fro, praising the Lord and smiling upon me. So conscious was I of the pardoning blood of Jesus that I seemed to feel it flowing over me. Amy would describe it, and many of us would, as being born again. Seeking direction for her life, Amy prayed and received a vision. She closed her eyes. She saw a black river rushing past with millions of men and women and children being swept into it. They were being helplessly pushed along by the river's current and falling over a waterfall. Then she heard, become a winner of souls. Puzzled at how in the world she could accomplish this task, Amy began to seek the Lord even further. Women couldn't preach. It was simply not allowed. But Amy believed that if Peter, a fisherman, could preach, maybe a Canadian farm girl could too. So she searched the New Testament. And as she did, she came to the conclusion that the only requirement necessary for one to preach was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So against her mother's wishes, Amy started attending tarrying meetings that had gone on in Ingersoll, Ontario for some time. There were manifestations in abundance at Ingersoll's tarrying meetings. They had been instituted for the purpose, purposes of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in 1908, were viewed by most as extremely radical. Even the Salvation Army approached many to discuss her, her daughter's sudden Pentecostal behavior. But Amy never cared what anybody thought. All she really wanted to do was to please God and Robert Semple. It was Robert's love for God that caused Amy to fervently pursue God. She fervently wanted to know him as Robert did. 
Amy's school grades were now slipping because of spending so much time at the tearing meetings. One morning as Amy passed the house of the woman who held the tearing meeting, she felt she just couldn't go on to school. She wanted to speak in tongues. In fact, she wanted to speak in other tongues so much that she turned back from the train and rang the woman's doorbell. Now she was skipping classes to tarry in prayer. Once Amy had been invited in and explained her heart's cry, she and the tarrying group leader started to seek in God and pray. Amy even asked God to delay school so she could continue to tarry there to receive. And when she did, a blizzard hit Ingersoll. The icy blast not only prevented her from traveling to school, it also kept her from going home. Amy was thrilled she had been snowed in for an entire weekend to tarry for the Holy Spirit. Early the next Saturday morning, while everyone else was asleep in the house, Amy arose early to seek the Lord. As she lifted her voice in adoration, her praises came deeper from within her until at last there was a thunder that came out of her that vibrated from head to toe. Amy slipped to the floor, feeling as if she were caught up in a billowy cloud of glory. Then suddenly words began flowing out of her mouth in another language, first in short phrases, then in full sentences. By now the whole house had been awakened by her sounds, and the group came shouting and rejoicing down the stairs. Among them was Robert Semple. It isn't known exactly how much time Robert Semple spent in Amy's town, but he must have traveled back and forth because of his being there when Amy was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Robert traveled extensively, but corresponded regularly with Amy throughout the winter. Then in the early spring of 1908, Robert returned to Ingersoll and proposed to her. In fact, he proposed to Amy in the same house in which she had received the baptism a few months earlier. Six months later, on August the 12th, 1908, Amy married Robert Semple in her family's farmhouse near Salford, Ontario. Amy would not finish high school because of her love for Semple. In fact, she left behind everything in order to love, honor, and obey her new husband. Robert was all she needed for a fulfilled and enriching life. He was my theological seminary, she would later write, my spiritual mentor and my tender, patient, unfailing lover. Before their marriage, Amy and Robert had convinced her parents that speaking in other tongues was scriptural, but it took much more to convince many of God's will concerning the couple's call to China. In preparation for their trip, Robert worked in a factory by day and preached by night. Soon his ministry took them to London, Ontario, where they ministered in homes. Robert would preach while Amy played the piano, sang and prayed with the converts. In just a few months, a hundred people had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. With many more saved, they also saw many remarkable healings. In January of 1909, the Semples went to Chicago, Illinois, where Robert was ordained. They ministered there for several months in an Italian neighborhood and were very content and happy. Later in the year, the Semples traveled to Finley, Ohio, to work in a mission. It was there that Amy had first experience with her first experience with divine healing. It happened when Amy broke her ankle after falling down some stairs. The physician who put the cast on Amy told her that she would never have the use of four ligaments again. And she was told to stay off her foot for at least a month. But Amy continued to hobble to the prayer meetings, even though the slightest vibration on the floor would cause tremendous pain. Finally, at one meeting, the pain became so intense that she had to return to her room. As she sat and stared at her black and swollen tolls, she heard a voice saying, If you will go over to the mission and ask Brother Durham, who was the lead pastor there, to lay hands on your foot, I will heal it. Recognizing it as the voice of the Lord, Amy did as she was told. At the mission, Pastor Durham had been walking up and down the aisles, 
He stopped and placed his hand on Amy's foot. A feeling like a shot of electricity struck her leg, and immediately the blackness left her toes. She felt the ligaments pop into place, and her bone mended together. Then suddenly she felt no pain. Amy excitedly asked for someone to cut away the cast. After some debate, they finally agreed to do so. Once the cast was removed, they were shocked to see a perfectly healed foot. Then Amy put on her shoes and danced all over the church. In early 1910, the Simples, the Simples were now expecting a child. They set sail for China. The couple visited Robert's parents in Ireland and stopped in London, where he preached at several meetings. While he was away at one of these meetings, a Christian millionaire asked Amy to preach in Victoria and Albert Hall. Amy was just 19 years old and had never preached in public before, but she didn't want to turn down an opportunity to serve God, so she nervously accepted. As Amy stood before the crowd in the crowded hall, she opened her Bible to Joel 1.4, Then she began to prophetically teach on the restoration of the church throughout the ages. In fact, she was so caught up in the moment of it that after the meeting, she could only remember the tremendous anointing that inspired the message. She couldn't remember what she said, but she could see the clapping and the wiping of eyes of the many who had heard her. In June of 1910, the Semples arrived in Hong Kong, but Amy wasn't ready for what she saw. The Chinese diet of caterpillars, bugs, and rats revolted her, and their apartment was very noisy. So they got very little rest. They eventually discerned their little apartment was haunted by demon spirits that were making some of the noises heard day and night. One day, the Hindus burned a man alive outside their kitchen window. This, along with everything else, had Amy living on the edge of hysteria most of the time. She had grown to hate the mission. As soon And soon, because of the poor living conditions, she and Robert both contracted malaria. Robert's case was worse than hers. And on August 17th, only two months after they had arrived, Robert Semple was dead. Amy was now left alone to fend for herself in this strange and foreign land. Her grief was unbearable, and she was pregnant with Robert's child. One month after Robert's death on September 17th, 1910, she gave birth to a small four-pound baby girl named her and named her Roberta Starr. But Robert's death had flooded Amy's life with grief. Nothing could describe her misery as she laid in her hospital bed, overcome with the horror of the reality of carrying on alone. At times, she would turn toward the hospital walls and scream into them. Amy's mother, Minnie, sent her the money to finally travel home. As the forlorn missionary widowed, widow steamed across the Pacific, the tiny baby she was holding was the only thing that brought her any hope. Once home, Amy mourned the loss of Robert for over a year, but she also continued to search for God's will in her life. She went to New York and then on to Chicago, hoping to minister in the churches Robert had left. Then the baby's health suffered, and she returned to her childhood home. But Amy's grief wouldn't allow her to sit still for long, and she eventually returned to New York. While in New York, Amy met Harold McPherson, who would soon become her second husband. McPherson was from Rhode Island and was described as a solid, clear-thinking man, great in strength and very kind. On February 28, 1912, Amy and Harold were married. Amy nicknamed Harold Mac. Roberta would call him Daddy Mac. They moved to Providence, Rhode Island, to settle into a small apartment where Harold got a job in a bank and Amy stayed home as a housewife. And by July 1912, Amy was expecting her second child. According to Amy, the only real problem that she and Harold had to contend with in their marital relationship was in the area of their vastly different goals. 
She described the three years following their wedding as being much like the story of Jonah. Amy had run from God and as a result was suffering from depression. She was plagued with illnesses and finally experienced an emotional breakdown. Then Rolf, her only son, was born on March the 23rd, 1913. And as a mother, she began to realize that an emotional maturity and stability was being built within her that would benefit her future. Not long after his birth, Amy began to hear the voice of the Lord telling her, preach the word. Will you go? Will you go? She would hear that voice, especially when she was cleaning the house. The sensitivity to the voice of God's spirit that Amy developed in those years would eventually shake a sleeping nation. It has been said that she tenderly spoke to the thousands in her ministry like a mother would speak to her children. In 1914, Amy worked around the community, preaching and teaching in Sunday schools, but this didn't satisfy the call that by now she had begun to hear almost booming in her spirit, do the work of an evangelist, will you go? But it was also in 1914 that Amy became gravely ill. After several surgeries, she grew no better and became despondent to the point of begging God to let her die. The physicians called Harold's mother and Minnie to inform them that Amy's of Amy's approaching death. But as Minnie listened to the report, she vividly remembered praying to God for her little girl. And she remembered her vow that Amy would fulfill the call Minnie had rejected herself. She held on to God's promise, refusing to let Amy die. The nurses wept as they watched Minnie standing over Amy's body, crying and renewing her promise to God. With hope almost gone, the interns moved Amy from her room to a ward where they took the dying. It was then that Amy began speaking out of the lifelessness of her coma. She was calling the people to repentance, and she was hearing the voice again, Will you go? She mustered up the energy to whisper that she would. Then she opened her eyes, and all the pain was gone. And within two weeks, she was up, and she was well. By now, Harold had a good job and wanted Amy to be like other women, clean the house, cook in the kitchen, but Amy felt she could not remain so so confined and be able to fulfill the call to go. So in the spring of 1915, after Harold left for work, Amy bundled up Roberta and Rolf along with their belongings and left for Toronto. I'm just pausing here while I'm doing this story. If you're just tuning in, counsel, what are you doing? I'm recounting the story of probably the greatest woman of God of the 20th century. And when I talk about Amy Semmel McPherson, she just, she just undoes me. This woman was not perfect. Here she says she's responding to the call of God, and she's leaving her husband. Now, that doesn't sound too kosher, does it? Stick with the story here as I continue. She wired Harold before leaving to attend her first Pentecostal camp meeting. I have tried to walk your way and have failed. Won't you come now and walk my way? I am sure we will be happy. Many agreed to take care of the children so Amy could start the ministry. Harold responded to Amy's wire many months later. By then, they were so far apart, Harold could not catch up to her. After months of trying to work out their differences, they faced up to the inevitable. With her future now committed, Amy was concerned she would never again operate in the power that she did while married to Robert. She feared God's anointing had left her, but her fears ended when she was welcomed by her friends at the camp meeting warmly. She was inspired when she heard all their heavy praise and sensed God's fire ignite within her. Still, she felt the need to confess her laxity to the Lord. And at the camp meeting, camp meeting's first altar call, she was the first one that responded. When she knelt at the altar, she felt God's grace and acceptance. Such love, she recalled, was more than my heart could bear. Before I knew it, I was on my back in the straw under the power of God. 
Amy would remain at the camp meeting for weeks. She washed dishes, waited on tables, prayed for people. It had been a long time since she had been this happy. Soon Amy began preaching on her own. She would use any method to draw a crowd, and people would travel from all over the countryside to hear her. In 1915, one of her meetings drew more than 500 people. She became a novelty. Besides her dramatics, she was a woman, and women preachers were hard to find in those days, so everyone was curious to see and hear her. The townspeople collected $65 for her in one of her meetings. With the offering, she was able to purchase a much-needed $500 tent. Thrilled at obtaining the bargain, Amy unrolled the second cam- the seasoned canvas to set it up, but unfortunately it wasn't a bargain. The canvas had been ripped to shreds in some places, so Amy quickly assembled her volunteers and sewed holes with them until their fingers were stiff and sore. By sunset, the patchwork tent was up. Once looking out over the crowd, Amy saw Harold. He had traveled to one of her meetings to see her preach. Before the night was over, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and joined her briefly in the meetings. There was a natural empathy in Amy that accentuated her ministry mannerisms and drew huge crowds of people from every walk of life. People could relate to her because, after all, everyone had a mother, and those who came would experience the power of God through amazing manifestations. Many would come just to sense the presence of God. Thousands had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For the next seven years... Amy crossed the United States six times. Remember, this is before planes, okay? This is trains and cars. And Amy crossed the United States six times between the years 1917 and 1923. She preached in more than 100 cities with meetings ranging in duration from two nights to a month. In other words, you know, if, if, if a preacher was drawing crowds and people were coming, they would stay in that town sometimes for like a month or even two months sometimes. Her first missionary experience with divine healing took place with a woman afflicted by rheumatoid arthritis. The woman's neck was so twisted that she was unable to look at the evangelist, but immediately following the prayer of faith, she turned her neck and looked into Amy's face. God had healed her, and how Amy knew it, as she looked her eye to eye. Amy stated emphatically that she never sought a healing ministry, and hardly relished the idea of one, but healing came with her evangelistic call, and after Hearing of the unusually successful results in answer to her prayers, people came in droves for prayer. Now, this account I'm reading here, and I'm not taking a break here, okay, because I feel led to do this. This account I'm reading here, I should, it is published, it's part of a book called God's Generals that a guy by the name of Roberts Learden put together. And it's a it's an amazing account. There are dozens and dozens of accounts of Amy Semple McPherson. I've read quite a few of them. And this one's pretty balanced. It's brief, it gets to the point, and it kind of like uh, uh, touches a lot of the bases that I think, uh, you know, where we can appreciate what this woman is all about. Minnie joined her ministry, her mom, okay? The crowds were soaring in numbers, but Amy's personal life began to suffer again as she and Harold disagreed about the ministry. He didn't like the vagabond, lo- vagabond life they were leading nor did he understand her vision for the future. So finally, after an all-night confrontation, Harold packed his belongings and left. Several years later, Harold filed for divorce, claiming that Amy had deserted him, but she countersued, stating the opposite. Harold would go on to remarry and live a a much more normal family life. Minnie now joined Amy's ministry and brought along with her Amy's daughter, Roberta. Roberta was now seven and had had, had not seen her mother in two years. But now that she was with her, she was quickly filled with the excitement of her mother's ministry and loved to watch her preach. 
Many immediately took charge of the crowd phenomena. Amy had drawn multitudes of people. As the thousands thronged to her meetings, Amy desperately needed someone to help manage them. And Mother Kennedy was a natural for this. She believed evangelism was more than faith. It required organization. Minnie's meticulous detailing was up to the task of Amy's anointing. And it would eventually take her daughter from tents to coliseums. The only early Pentecostal belief Amy was ever known to have taken a stand against was the doctrine of sanctification as a second work of grace. She strongly felt that those who claimed or pursued Christian perfectionism often turned their backs on the people of the world, creating a religious isolationism. Amy wanted the gospel to fit everyone, and she didn't want anyone to feel intimidated about coming to hear about God's word. She was burdened by the eliteness she had seen in the church that kept needy sinners away. She called sin, sin, inviting everyone to repentance. Whatever fancy name you give it, sin is sin. God looks on the heart, and as for holiness, why, without holiness, no man shall see God. We must be saved. We must be sanctified. But it's all through the precious, atoning blood of Jesus Christ. In 1918, when World War I was raging in Europe and America was plagued with a deadly outbreak of influenza, Amy was viewed as a ray of hope because of her doctrine. One of her major thrusts of ministry appreciated by everyone was that of servanthood. To demonstrate this, the Lord directed Amy one day while she was out looking for a new dress to actually make a purchase. You are a servant of all, are you not? Go upstairs and ask to see the servant's dresses, the Lord said. So Amy obeyed and bought two servants' dresses for $5. And from that time on, she always was seen in her distinguishing white servants' dress and a cape. She kind of looked like a, like a, a 1920s Florence Nightingale uh, nurse, if you see old pictures of her. One afternoon when Roberta was suffering with influenza, she asked, remember the influenza break that took, the, the, uh, outbreak that uh, took place in uh, the early 20s? One afternoon when Roberta was suffering from influenza, she asked her mother why they couldn't have a home like everyone else. As Amy prayed for Roberta's healing, God spoke to her and proclaimed that he would not only raise up her daughter, but would also give them a home in sunny California. She even received a vision of their new home, seeing a bungalow with a rose garden. When Roberta recovered, the group set out for California. Roberta would later say they had no idea how much of a miracle the house really was because when Mother told us something would happen, it was like money in the bank, Roberta would later relate. The trip was no small exploit. Roadmaps were few. Towns were far apart, and conditions of the roads were questionable. But none of this hindered Amy. This was long, long before interstate highways. This is even before Route 66. On the way to the West Coast, Amy drove into Indianapolis just as they had lifted the influenza ban. It was then that she met Maria Woodworth Eder. Now, that's a name you need, you need to look up and Google. Google Maria Woodworth Eder. You'll see a, you know, she looks like an old lady dressed in an old-fashioned way. But you start reading about Maria Woodworth Eder, oh, my goodness. That's a woman that we, you, you should find out about. I just put the name out there, Maria Woodworth Eder. It was a thrill of her life to finally meet this woman who had so inspired her and to hear her preach. When she finally arrived in Los Angeles in late 1918, Amy's fame had preceded her. By now, the Azusa Street Mission was just a memory. Its members were scattered throughout the city, but they were waiting for the person whom God would use to pull them back together. When Amy arrived, they believed it was her. I've got to give you some historical context for those of you that don't know 
um, uh, Pentecostal history at all. The Azusa Street Mission where was, was uh, the epicenter of the outbreak of uh, uh, the Pentecostal movement in around 1903-1904. It was an abandoned old stable that people started having meetings. And, and, and as they got, got together and they prayed, people began to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. There were miraculous, medically confirmed healings. There was miracles. And there were tens of thousands of people that were affected by this prayer meeting that started at the Azusa Street Street Mission. And what the account of Amy Semple McPherson is talking about, by the time she got there, that whole outbreak had passed, and t- it was 10 years you know, in, in the past. Two days after she arrived, Amy preached a message to 700 people entitled, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. By early 1919, the aisles, floors, and windowsills of the Philharmonic Auditorium were packed with people to hear her. The people of Los Angeles couldn't do enough for Amy and her family. Less than two weeks after she arrived, a woman stood up in one of her meetings saying the Lord had impressed her to give the evangelist some land which she could build a home. Others stood and pledged their labor and the material, even the rose bushes in her vision, would be donated. And by April, the house with gabled porches and a fireplace was a reality. By now, Amy could see that a permanent place to preach was a great need. So between the years of 1919 and 1923, she traveled across the U.S. nine times. I mean, we read that and we don't think anything of it. But back then, before interstates, before even, you know, even there wasn't as many train tracks as uh, put down yet. Okay, that's unbelievable. Nine times in four years, preaching and raising money for the building of Angelus Temple. And everywhere she traveled, people loved her. In Baltimore, Maryland... The first auditorium Amy preached in seated 3,000 people, but people were turned away for lack of seating space. So she rented another auditorium that seated 16,000 people. It was here that Amy shocked the Baltimore masses through her pointing out of a demonic, of the demonic behavior in an overly demonstrative worshiper. Up until then, it was considered unethical to confront someone who was ecstatic for God. But she nailed it here and said, look at this lady's nuts, okay, and and had her taken out of the meeting. While Amy was in Baltimore, a national healing campaign began. Incredible and highly unusual miracles occurred. The headlines screamed the results of each meeting. It had been said that when Amy would enter the hall before a meeting... There were often throngs of desperately ill people seeking to touch her and that when she saw them, she would run back overwhelmed into her dressing room to pray for God's help. Everywhere Amy went, crowns pressed in to touch her. She would watch in regret as the police forced to bolt the doors and trying to protect her. After a while, she would close her eyes at night. All she could see was the 1,700 people who were packed into a place that was built to hold a 1,000. She would see the altars and basements overflowing with the sick and would wake up thinking of how Jesus had dealt with all this. Wouldn't you just realize how Jesus had to get into a boat and push away from the land in order to preach to people? Minnie was an incredible organizer. She ran Amy's ministry from the rafters to the basement, keeping their finances in the black. She was tough and sometimes only slept two hours a night. She screened every sick person before the service to weed out the troublemakers, and she spent long hours with invalids before the service began. Minnie would never sit down to a meal. She would grab food at the oddest moments between registering invalids, greeting delegates, and organizing the Ministry of Helps. She worked diligently to establish a business foundation for the ministry, but she never grasped the fullness of Amy's call, and she never really understood why Amy did what she did. If anyone ever got too close to Amy, Minnie would harass her daughter until that particular relationship was broken. Many employees quit 
or were fired because many because of many. Perhaps this was one reason Amy never had a close friend for very long. Their mother-daughter relationship had always involved much stress, and in the years to come, Amy's feeling of being owned and controlled would eventually cause them to part, and that eventually happened between the two of them. In late 1922, Amy's 5,000-seat temple was finally completed. Its dedication took place in an extravagant service on New Year's Day in 1923. Those who couldn't attend saw its likeness on a flower-covered float that was ridden by singing choir members in Pasadena's Tournament of Roses parade. This carried away the first prize of its division. The New York Times, now that's significant because it's the New York Times, not the Los Angeles Times, way on the other coast of the states. The New York Times gave the dedication full coverage. And from then on, Angeles Temple's 5,000 seats were filled four times every Sunday. The temple had perfect acoustics. It was said that many Hollywood producers were hoping Amy would fail so they could simply acquire the building and turn it into a theater. But Amy wouldn't fail. And she would eventually have it transformed into a theater herself. It was a theater for God. According to Amy, the entire Bible was a sacred drama that was meant to be preached and illustrated dramatically. And it was here that she believed denominational churches had lost their cutting edge. Amy truly believed the church had grown too cold and formal. And while the world's love for entertainment brought them encouragement, joy, and laughter, she also felt this to be the reason that so many Christians were hungry for entertainment. In July of 1922, Amy named Angelus Temple the Church of the Four Square Gospel because of a vision she received while preaching from the first chapter of Ezekiel. The first, opening, the first signing day of her new association produced 1,000 pastors. She ordained 1,000 pastors when they started this denomination to kick it off. Two meetings were set aside each week as the temple to pray for the sick. Though she had 24 elders on staff, Amy would personally conduct most of these meetings right up until the day she passed away in 1944. The healing results in Los Angeles were astounding, but they were less observed by the general public than they had been in Amy's national campaigns. In the temple's larger service, services, the focus was on soul winning and on the training of soul winners. I'm skipping a lot of stuff here, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep to the relevant stuff here so you'll uh, get, a, get the gist of this. Without question, Angelus Temple was a very busy place. Amy had a prayer tower that was manned 24 hours a day. She also formulated a 100-voice choir and a brass band of 36 people. This is the 1920s. The sanctuary is filled with music in every service, and she purchased costumes, props, and scenery to accent her sermons in Hollywood. Most of Los Angeles' new, attend new attending a service at Angelus Temple was quite a major event. Amy had a remarkable sense of humor. And though where there were many flaws in her early illustrated sermons, she always made the best of them. Once to give her Garden of Eden scene some life, she ordered a macaw from a visiting circus. She didn't know of, of its coarse, vulgar language and learned it while working with the show. And in the middle of her oratory, the macaw, macaw turned to her and said, Oh, go to hell! The 5,000 in attendance froze in disbelief. Then, as if the bird wanted to be sure that everyone had heard it, it repeated itself again. But Amy was not to be outdone. She made the best of the mistake. And she did as she did every blooper, by proceeding to witness to the bird, encouraging it to respond. Then when it did respond with the same words, the audience was hysterical. She finally persuaded the rented bird of the true Christian way by promising 
it a bird perch in heaven for its part in the show. Of course, certain ministers persecuted Amy for her methods, but she would respond to them by saying, there's a great line here, show me a better way to persuade willing people to come to church and I'll be happy to try your method. But please, don't ask me to preach to empty seats. Let's not waste our time quarreling over methods. God has use for all of us. Remember, the recipe in the old adage for rabbit stew, it begins with, you first got to catch the rabbit. Many Hollywood stars were interested in what Amy had to say. Frequent attendees at the temple were Mary Pickford, Jean Harlow, Clara Bow, Charlie Chaplin was able to slip into a few of her services and would later become good friends with the evangelist. In fact, Chaplin would later help Amy with the temple staging of her illustrated sermons, and Amy would show him the truth of life. Anthony Quinn played in Amy's band. Quinn was with Amy before his great debut as an actor. While Quinn was a teenager, Amy took him as her translator on a Spanish mission. The world-renowned actor would later say, that one of the greatest moments of his life was when Amy noticed him. And he would write, years later, when I saw the great actresses at work, I would compare compare them to her. Ingrid Bergman, Catherine Hepburn, Greta Garbo, they all fell short of that first electric shock Amy Semple McPherson produced in me. In February 1923, Amy opened her school of ministry that would eventually become known as Life, Lighthouse of International Foursquare Evangelism Bible College. Amy was an avid instructor at the school. Sister, as the movement called her, served as a teacher and openly revealed her weaknesses as well as her strengths to the student body. Her favorite Christian authors were John Wesley, William Booth, and the Canadian revivalist by the name of A.B. Simpson. Amy often quoted these men and taught from their writings. In February of 1924, Amy opened Radio KFSG, which stood for Call Four Square Gospel with the first FCC license ever issued to a woman. It was also the first Christian radio station ever operated. Did you know that? First Christian radio station started by a woman. By 1926, Amy was in need of a good vacation, so she traveled to Europe and to the Holy Land. She ended up preaching during most of it. Then upon her return in 1926, the greatest scandal and controversy of her ministry took place. On May the 18th, 1926, while enjoying an afternoon at the beach with her secretary, Amy made some final notes on a sermon to be given that night. She asked her secretary to call the information back to the temple. But when her secretary returned, Amy was gone. Thinking Amy had gone for a swim, the secretary scanned the water, then notified the authorities. Over the next 32 days, Amy's disappearance became the hottest news story in the world. Los Angeles beaches were combed and its outlying waters were searched for any trace of her, but nothing was found. In the meantime, a ransom letter for $25,000 was received at Angeles Temple. Minnie threw it away with the rest of the crazy mail that was now pouring in. Then another letter came in from a different source demanding a half a million dollars. And the press went wild. Amy sightings were the order of the day. Once she was reportedly seen 16 times on the same day from coast to coast. A memorial service was finally scheduled for Amy at Angelus Temple on June the 20th. Then, three days after the service, Amy walked into Douglas or Arizona from the desert at Agua Prieta, Mexico. When questioned about her whereabouts, Amy told the world that a man and a woman approached her to pray for their dying child. 
that day at the beach after the secretary left. She said the woman was crying and that the man brought a cloak to cover her swimsuit in the hopes that she would consent. She then agreed to help the couple and followed them to their car. Amy explained how she had done this many times in her ministry and thought nothing much of it. But when the three of them arrived at the car, Amy noticed it was running. She said there was a man at the wheel and that the woman posing as the mother stepped into the car before her. Then she was told by the supposed father to get inside as he roughly pushed her in. The next thing she knew, someone was holding her head back and the woman pushed chloroform soaked a chloroform-soaked pad into her face. When Amy awoke, she was being held in a shack by a woman and two men. She said they threatened her, cut off a piece of her hair, and burned her fingers with a cigar. She also said that they moved her to another place the two men left and that she was able to make her escape when the woman went shopping. The woman had tied Amy up with bedclothes before she left, but Amy was able to cut through them with a jagged piece of a tin can. Once she was free, Amy left through the window, then walked through the desert for hours until she came upon a cabin in Douglas, Arizona. When she finally received cooperation from the police, once they believed her claimed identity, Amy phoned Minnie in Los Angeles. But even Minnie didn't believe her until she revealed a secret that only Amy could have known about her private life. Following a night in the hospital, some 50,000 people welcomed Amy back to Angela's temple, but her ordeal had just begun. Amy had accused and described her kidnappers, but they were never to be found. And when the police accompanied her in an attempt to retrace her desert footsteps, there was no shack matching her description anywhere to be found. Then Los Angeles District Attorney Asa Keys accused Amy of lying and went to great lengths to discredit her. She had been reportedly seen in a Carmel bungalow with her radio producer, Kenneth Ormiston, and Keyes produced many witnesses in an attempt to confirm the fact. So far as possible kidnappers were concerned, it is true that Amy had many, many enemies in the underworld. Gangsters had a huge network of prostitution, drug trafficking, loan sharking, and bootlegging in in the Los Angeles area, and Amy had won several of their key people to the Lord. It's also true that Amy regularly opened the airwaves of her radio station to allow new converts to give salvation accounts. But when these former underworld converts broadcasted their testimonies, they would often give not only their salvation accounts, they would expose the criminal deeds of their former associates, many times calling them by name. You got to remember, this is long before the age of lawsuits and, and you know the litigation that we see in our culture now. Amy's kidnapping story never varied. In fact, hers was the only story that never changed. Reporters, detectives, and prosecutors all changed their accounts time and time again. Even the witnesses who testified against Amy changed their testimony. And when they did, her charges of corruption, of public morals, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy to manufacture evidence were finally dropped. Some interesting side notes concerning Amy's scandal include the facts that District Attorney Keyes would eventually be sentenced to San Quentin, and Amy's attorney would later be found dead. Incidences have suggested that many, to many that the mob was really involved. Following her return to ministry, Amy would wear the robes of a true apostolic evangelist. She would show up at nightclubs, dance halls, pool halls, and boxing matches to announce her meetings during intermissions. Managers liked the publicity, and their clientele adored her. Amy wasn't afraid of the world's sinners. 
and now would seek with even greater fervor to bring Jesus to where they were. She thought it funny that so many Christians set boundaries as to where or where not the gospel should be preached. But in the latter part of 1926, lawsuit after lawsuit was assaulting her, and her promoters were involving her in all kinds of business ventures. When their plans failed, the blame and unpaid bills always fell on Amy. Attorneys only seemed to make matters worse. And now more than Amy ever, Amy desperately needed a friend. She needed someone who she could trust. It seemed that everyone she had been ever been close to was either betraying her or withering under the criticism. And that's when the break from Minnie came. And they had a real fallout. And I won't go into the gory details of that. But the strain of all, the, of all, all of it simply turned out to be more than Amy could bear. In 1930, she suffered a complete emotional, physical breakdown and was confined to a Malibu Beach cottage under her physician's care. Following this 10-month ordeal, Amy would return to Los Angeles Temple and would recover to some extent, but she would never again regain the vim and the vigor that she formerly enjoyed. Amy's physician explained her problem by simply stating she could not get her needed rest. By the time 1931 arrived, Amy was very lonely. The price of fame was high. She had no close friends, and she dearly wanted companionship. Rolf, her son, would marry a Bible school student in the middle of that year, and Amy was elated. Then on September 13, 1931, Amy married again, this time to her third husband, Dr. David Hutton. It had been said that because of Amy's loneliness and her desperate need for love and protection that she imagined all sorts of virtues in this man, but in reality, they simply weren't there. Not long after they were married, Hutton was sued by another woman, he had promised to marriage to. The court proceedings lasted a year, and the ruling went against him. But Amy carried on in her calling around the nation. She experienced tremendous success in New England, New England as thousands came to hear her. Due to her health, on April 22, 1927, she offered to resign as the pastor of Angelus Temple. This offer was refused. Then in January, she set sail for Europe in accordance with her doctor's advice, and again, thousands crowded to her meetings. While she was away, Hutton, amid scandal, filed for divorce. The years between 1938 and 1944 were very quiet years for Amy. There was very little said about her in the press. Amy was sued by disgruntled employees, associate pastors, and whoever else thought that they could make a dollar off of her. So she hired a new business manager, a guy by the name of Giles Knight, who kept her out of the public eye. Every reporter had to go through him to see her, and everyone was refused. Amy would keep Knight informed to her whereabouts and then stay away to live a halfway anonymous life. Rolf McPherson still speaks highly of Knight for the service rendered his mother that brought so much peace into their house. Much of Amy's efforts during these years was given to pastoring, training future ministers, establishing hundreds of churches, and sending missionaries around the world. But in 1942... She also led a brass band and color guard into downtown Los Angeles to sell war bonds. She sold $150,000 worth of bonds in one hour, so the U.S. Treasury awarded her a special citation for her patriotic endeavor. She would also organize regular Friday night prayer meetings at Angeles Temple for the duration of World War II, gaining the expressed appreciation of President Roosevelt and California's governor for doing so. By 1944... Amy's health was very poor. She was suffering from tropical infections that she had contracted during missionary trips. So in February of that year, she named Rolf as the new vice president of the ministry. 
Rolf had proven his faithfulness and served his mother well over the years. In fact, he was the only person who stayed with her through both the good times and the bad. Then in September of 1944, Rolf flew to Oakland with his mother to dedicate a new church. There was a blackout in the city. Now, i got to tell you this, okay? I'm just breaking it with the story here. They flew to Oakland to start a new church. I had a friend of mine in church this morning, the church that I pastor. John is in his 70s. John was saved at the age of 15 in the 50s, and we were comparing notes, and we pretty much believed that it was the exact same church that John gave his life to Christ in. He was in my service this morning. I just thought I'd throw that out there. They flew to Oakland with his mother to dedicate a new church. There was a blackout in the city because of the war, so Amy and Rolf spent the evening together in a room for some ministry and family talk. Huge crowds and the work of the ministry always exhilarated Amy, so she was high in spirits. When the evening drew to a close, Rolf kissed his mother goodnight and left the room. Amy had always been plagued with insomnia. She was taking sedatives from her physician, and she had obviously taken a couple on this night to sleep. She probably didn't know how many it would take, and she was scheduled to preach the next day, so he must have decided she needed to she needed more to fall off to sleep. According to the physicians, it was about dawn when Amy must have known something was wrong. But instead of calling Rolf, she placed a call to her physician in Los Angeles. He was in surgery and didn't respond. So she called another physician who referred to her to Dr. Palmer in Oakland. But before she could make this third call, Amy lost consciousness. At 10 a.m., Rolf decided to try and wake his mother and found her in bed, breathing hoarsely, unable to revive her. He called for medical assistance, but it was too late. On September 27, 1944, Amy Semple McPherson went home to be with the Lord. She died at the age of 53. Amy's body laid in Angela's temple for three days and three nights as 60,000 people filed by to pay their last respects. The stage on which her open casket rested, the orchestra pit, and most of Temple's aisles were filled with flowers. Five carloads of them had to be turned away. Then on Amy's birthday, October 9, 1944, a motorcade of 600 automobiles drove to Forest Law Memorial Park where this frontline general of God's Christian army was finally laid to rest. The cemetery admitted 2,000 people along with 1,700 four-square ministers whom Amy had ordained. The complete story of Amy Semple McPherson could never be told in just one chapter. This is the words of Robert Slearden's account of it. As with God's other great generals, only heaven will reveal everything she accomplished. But for our purposes here, let me say that in her lifetime, Amy composed 175 songs and hymns, several operas, 13 dramatories. Those are illustrated uh, productions like sermons with, you know, props and actors and full music. She also preached thousands of sermons and graduated over 8,000 ministers from Life Bible College. It is estimated that during the Depression, some one and a half million people received aid from her ministry, and today the four-square denomination is continuing to expound the, expound the truths of God's word as they were revealed to Sister McPherson in her revealed four-square gospel's original doctrine of faith. The four squares. Now, people have heard four squares. They wonder, what's that mean? What's, that, what's the whole four-square thing? The four squares were Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Healer, Jesus is Baptizer in the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is our soon-coming king. And I told you that, you know, when I started reading this story, that there were a number of accounts of uh, 
uh, of you know her life, and they're readily available, and you can research uh, a lot of her life. You got to be careful what sources you Google, though, because there's a lot of people who she had all kinds of enemies, and she's portrayed all, often as a you know a con artist. But anybody that uh, uh, was close to her and knew what she was all about, she was anything else but. She wrote this. I want to, I want to uh, read to you what she wrote just about a week before she died, almost as if as, as if she knew, you know, the end could be coming soon. And uh, it, she really lived by this as well. So it wasn't just an, an epitaph of, of sorts. You don't need to be an orator, she wrote. What God wants is plain people with the good news in their hearts who are willing to go and tell it to others. The love of winning souls for Jesus Christ sets a fire burning in one's bones. Soul winning is the most important thing in the world. All I have is on the altar for the Lord. And while I have my life and strength, I will put my whole being into carrying out this great commission. And I've often wondered, why does this lady have such a grip on my imagination? Why did she just like, I mean, she blows me away. And I'm, I'm surprised that I could get through that account tonight w- without, you know, cracking up and breaking. Because there's often times when I've told the story of Amy Seppel McPherson and her impact on, on uh, North America in the late teens and early 20s of the last century. And if you don't, if you have, if you're not been aware of the historical accounts and you haven't seen the actual front pages of the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times, you can't imagine the impact this woman had. From such simple, humble beginnings in Ingersoll, Ontario. My daughter-in-law, that is married to my son, they live in Los Angeles. Before they were married, Amber, my daughter-in-law, did a year's discipleship. That's like a one-year Bible college. She did it at Angelus Temple. Angelus Temple sat pretty much abandoned for 30 years. The four-square church at Angelus Temple was still, you know, functioning there, but they were only running about two or three or four hundred. So it was much more easier for them to meet on their Sunday mornings in, uh, in one of the smaller rooms that's part of the complex. In 1994, a preacher's kid by the name of Matt Barnett felt called of God to leave his father's megachurch in Phoenix, Arizona, and to start a mission in Los Angeles. They called it, well... They, they uh, uh, had no name for it until they got to Los Angeles, and there was people that came from the church in Phoenix, and their whole mission was just to minister to poor people in Los Angeles. All they cared about was, uh, you know, feeding the poor, uh, looking out for the addicted, and trying to help people. Well, let me give you the account of it, okay? The Dream Center. The Dream Center is a Pentecostal Christian church mission located it gives the address in Los Angeles. It's based on the former Queen of Angels Hospital at Bellevue Waterloo Street. The facility consists of almost 400,000 square feet in buildings and 8.8 acres of prime commercial real estate. The church ministers to gang members, drug addicts, unwed mothers, and children without parents, motorcycle groups, taggers, AIDS victims, and various subculture, ethnic, and nationality groups. It feeds the homeless and others in need and runs a halfway house for released prisoners. Close to 500 people are housed at the center and receive rehabilitation. Many other services are offered each week to meet the spiritual and physical needs of the community. The Dream Center is a non-profit organization. Pastor Matthew Barnett manages the Dream Center and pastors the Angelus Temple, which is the four-square Pentecostal church. 
when they started in 1994, there was only 35 of them. And they prayed and they prayed and they worked and they worked. And this hospital, this abandoned hospital that the Dream Center now has become, uh, became available. Asking price was $19 million. Where is 35 people? And they, they believed God was going to give them that facility. Where are they going to get $19 million? And I won't go into the details, but within two years, they had that building in their possession. possession and God provided it. And it went on to, I mean, they, not only is the Dream Center, uh, 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 well, I'll give you the account here. This is right out of Wikipedia. I'm reading this. Matt Barnett and the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel united the Dream Center with the famous Angelus Temple. Through a process of two Christian denominations working together, the unification was possible, and as of November 1st, 2001, Pastor Barnett became the senior pastor over Angelus Temple, as well as the Dream Center. Associated Dream Centers have been established in other cities. Over 100 Dream Centers have been launched around the world, and with the same kind of DNA, you know, of ministering to the poor. The Dream Center has a number of resources for both the community and the people living in different states or countries. For the homeless, they have a transitional family housing program, Skid Row Outreach, and a food chapel. For human trafficking victims, they have a human trafficking program, an emergency, the, emergency central, uh, the emergency shelter, and the emergency hotline. For communities outreach, they have the Dream Center Academy, the Lord's Gym, Adopt-A-Block, the Youth Center, and the Worship Project. For hunger in general, they provide food trucks. They have dozens of food trucks. And a food bank to the public. For poverty issues, they have the Emancipating Youth Home Program, Foster Care Interview clothing outreach, mobile medical clinics, adult education programs, and the job placement and transition program. For the recovery, they have men's and women's discipleship live-in programs. They've been, they've been uh, um, commended by uh, Presidents Obama, Presidents Bush, and I'm sure Donald Trump has heard of them by now. I mean, you talk about people that are, that are doing Christianity right. So when we were on vacation this summer, uh, in, in L.A., you're darn right I wanted to take in a service. And we went down to Angelus Temple. We heard Matt Barnett speak, and it, we were just blown away. Fifteen to 20,000 people, and it's not just people coming to hear the gospel. It's people that are mobilized, and they figure they touch about 50,000 people a week, the poor and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the destitute throughout the L.A. area. And... Uh, And this isn't like a punchline here. I didn't read the whole story and give you the account because of what I'm going to tell you right now. We started Christ Church in February here in Ottawa. And uh, it started in my basement. I had 22 people show up who had come through a, a horrendous experience um, that we had all shared and we didn't know what to do. We had no desire to start a church. We just knew that we needed God. And uh, we were started seeking God together. After meeting about three or four Thursday nights in a row, we, there was a widespread agreement that, at, that, you know, against my wishes and against, you know, what we, you know, had, had hoped would not turn out, we realized, okay, we got a church. Now what do we do? Now why would I hesitate? Why would I not want to start a new church? Because there are people that specialize in that. I turned 58 today. You don't start a church when you're 57 years old. That's for young guys to do, 25, 30 years old. And we continued to pray on Thursday nights, and the prayer meeting grew. It became so big, we couldn't have it in my basement anymore. And God provided us with a, a facility in Lower Town because one thing about this group of people that have been praying together that 
formed the genesis of Christ Church is they're, they're impassioned. We're impassioned to minister to the poor. We're, we don't want to, we want to go after the people that nobody else wants. And it's interesting that when the Dream Center started out, because I've got a lot of people, we've got a lot of people in our fellowship that have gone to the Dream Center for ministry training, and it's in their DNA. And they wouldn't be satisfied just showing up, you know, for a church service. They've got to be doing something for God. I mean, you want to you wanna talk about how thrilling it is to lead a bunch like that, boy. I'll tell you, I, 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 sometimes I feel like I'm the most blessed pastor in the world. And one of the lines that we've adopted that, that influenced the Dream Center, and we've taken it on at Christ Church, Matt Barnett felt God telling him, you go after people that nobody wants, and I'll send you people that everybody wants. Now, we don't think too much about people that everybody wants, but that's kind of like the vision of Christchurch. And if you go to Christchurch, uh, com, which is our website, that's our target audience. And we've had a number of opportunities, you know, to have facilities outside of the downtown core in Ottawa, but we're committed to that. And we continue to pursue uh, the opportunity to minister to people that need it the most. And as we've been growing and, and the facility we're in now, uh, we're pretty much standing room only. We're packed. It's growing. And we're excited. And it's, it's, it's you know, you know what the most exciting thing is about? Yeah, you know what the most exciting thing about it is? Nobody knows what they're doing, okay? <laughs> I mean, we spend a ton of time in prayer. We spend a ton of time, you know, getting together and trying to figure out, okay, God, what do you want us to do next? And we would rather, you know, uh, sit in our duff and not know what we're doing and be unified then have some crazy idea try to push us and somebody's, you know, you know, uh, manipulative vision take over. And we witnessed just some amazing things. And, and, and uh, not only like numerical growth, but the spiritual growth is like nothing I've ever seen in 36 years of pastoring. And in the last six weeks, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, uh, relate the story of, of Amy Semple McPherson and the Church of the Foursquare Gospel that she founded. And I have had connections with the Foursquare Church, oh, for 35 years. And uh, I've been to, uh, one of their highest profile pastors is a guy by the name of Jack Hayford, who ran a pastor's school when he was pastoring in Van Nuys, California, that I attended. And, and as a side note, and I've told this story before, I've told people that, yeah, I was down at a pastor's school in California, and the first day we had off, so we decided to go watch a taping of The Price is Right. And I got called down as a contestant. Well, it was Jack Hayford's pastor's school that went on that week that, you know, when I got called down as a contestant, The Price is Right. Well, that's just an, uh, uh, you know, an aside thing. And uh, I've had great admiration for those people, my entire, like, uh, ministry. I find them to be humble, just Christ-like uh, servants of God. And believe it or not, one thing has led to another, and the situation has developed with our church here in Ottawa, Christ Church, that we are now seeking affiliation with uh, the Church of the Foursquare Gospel. Apparently, uh, there is no Foursquare Church in uh, Ottawa, there was one. It shut down about 12 or 13 years ago um, because the guy who was leading it, he was doing it part-time, and he just could He was pastoring the church for about 10 years, and uh, it just shut down and dispersed. And uh, lo and behold, we've been on this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, course and, and uh, uh, direction, and uh, the thing has just unfolded in front of us. And uh, I got in touch with the former uh, pastor of this Foursquare Church, and it turns out this guy was a guest on my old radio show. 
late night council when I was on CFRA. He came in and co-hosted with me a couple times on Ask the Pastor, and we renewed our acquaintance, and he has heard about our plans, and he's been, you know, attending our services, and he is so thrilled he doesn't know what to do about it. And uh, uh, so we're pretty excited about it. We're pretty excited to be joining uh, a fellowship of churches, a movement that has such an amazing supernatural history to it, but a history that is flawed as well. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the story of the Church of the Foursquare Gospel is so true to life of what God's plan, you know, really entails for all of us. I, I preach often that, you know, God, God has to use imperfect people because all the perfect ones are dead. And we realize our imperfections. I, I love 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It's probably been my favorite Bible verse for the last five to 10 years. And Paul says, I will glory in my weaknesses. Because if I don't, the cross is going to be emptied of its power. And if there's one thing that could be said for Amy Semple McPherson and the people of the Foursquare Church, particularly in the first 15, 20 years, they had the power of God there. There was thousands of medically confirmed miracles that took place. They had so many astounding occurrences take place. I mean, you'd have to be a, almost a deaf, dumb, and blind, miserable, grouchy critic to not see that, that, that uh, the power of God was there. And, you know, critics have attributed to, you know, manipulation and con art and stuff. You know what? Manipulation doesn't heal cancers. Manipulation and conning does not mend broken bones together to the point where they don't need surgery and people that couldn't walk can walk again. And those type of miracles happened. And it's interesting that, the, that Jesus told his followers that it, you know, if, they, if they laid down their lives for him and they followed him, he said, these signs shall follow them that believe. People will rise from the dead. The blind will see. The lame will walk. Broken bodies will be healed. And, and they've seen that time and time again. Now, does that, mean, does that mean that they're any more special? I don't think so. If you even look at the life of Amy Semmel McPherson, she was an imperfect lady who recognized that, you know, I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. And there's, there's been a lot of commentary on what that means. What does that mean to take up your cross and follow Christ? He told his disciples in more than one place in the Gospels. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. Now think about that. What was Jesus' cross? That was the thing that was going to kill him. That was the thing that was going to be the testimony to his death. And there are people that make excuses for following Christ. There are people that make excuses for not giving their life to him. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, what's going to kill you? What's the habit? What's the sin that you can't conquer? What's the circumstance that stops you from believing? Jesus says, you follow me anyway. Take it up. Take it up and follow me. With some people, it's, it's, it's a, an addiction. With some people, it's a, it's a busted relationship. With some people, it's, they think that, you know, they, that they're poor, you know, uh, financially or even intellectually. Jesus says, you follow me anyway. Take up what you think is killing you, and you come and follow me. And he starts doing the miraculous. He starts doing wonderful things. And I could give you tonight, and I don't like being, I, you know, pastors that are salesmen for their churches, they, 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 they give me a pain where I shouldn't have one, Okay. I can give you more reasons why you shouldn't attend Christ Church than I can give you of why you should, okay? And I don't mind doing that. Our facility, you know, we don't own it. We rent it. There's not enough space. We can't adequately do children's ministries like we want to. 
We meet on Sunday mornings in a field house in Lower Town in, in, in Ottawa. Our prayer meetings, we meet at the Bible House on 315 Lisker Street in, in uh, 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 just off of Bank Street. Our intercessors meetings, that's at a different home every Wednesday night. Our ladies' Bible study meets in a common room in a high-rise apartment. Our story time where people get to relate their testimonies and tell their incredible stories of miraculous conversion and healing, etc., they take place at a legion, okay? I mean, we do we run church in six different, you know, facilities. In fact, this week I just got T-shirts printed up, okay? It's got our church logo on the front. It says Christ Church Ottawa. And on the back, you know what it says on the back? It says the church has left the building. That is so Book of Acts. I love that. Because in Acts it says that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The church has never been a building. Buildings that house churches, that we've changed the meaning. And we use the word church to describe a building. That's not what the Bible says a church is. A church is where any two or three come together in the name of Jesus. And he says, there I am in the midst. And I don't see anywhere in the priorities of following Christ where, you know, God's money that goes into a storehouse is supposed to be, you know, used in, you know, to keep elaborate buildings going. It goes to minister. In fact, Paul talked about the money coming in, the collection being give, taken up for the poor and taking care of those kind of needs. And if he doesn't, if he says in his word that he's done dwell in temples made with hands, think about it. Think about it. I think the number's up to about two trillion dollars in north america alone two trillion dollars spent to build buildings to honor a god two trillion dollars caught up in buildings to honor a god who has said i don't dwell in temples made with hands so we don't worry too much about buildings we're far more concerned with uh we're far more concerned with uh, the reality of the spiritual needs of people and what's really, really going on in their lives. I haven't given out the phone number since 20 after 10. Boy, how's that for a phone-in show, eh? Guy never gives out the phone numbers. Well, I kind of like the thought of, I kind of like to run, um, I like to kind of do uh, late-night counsel and ask the pastor, like Bill Veck used to run his uh, his baseball teams. Who's Bill Veck? Well, you should Google that name. Veck is spelled V-E-E-C-K. V-E-E-C-K. It looks like it should be pronounced Veek, but it's Vec. Bill Vec owned the St. Louis Browns in, well, about from 1938 to 1944. This guy was the, he was the P.T. Barnum of baseball owners. He was a promoter. He did some of the craziest things you can imagine. I mean, it was supposed to be just a sport that was played on a field. Well, Bill Veck is the guy that sent a, a, a midget up to the plate at a St. Louis Browns games to celebrate the anniversary of the Browns. It was some 10th anniversary, and they wheeled out a great big cake between a doubleheader between two games, and uh, out of this cake popped this little midget who's dressed in a full St. Louis Browns uniform. And on the back it says one quarter. The crowd loved it. They ate it all up. Well, stink if... If Bill Veck doesn't send up that little midget to the plate 
of the second game. He's the first batter. He comes out of the dugout, stands in the batter's box, and people are freaking out. Well, the manager of the opposing team comes out and says, hey, cut with the theatrics here, Vec. What's going on? And the manager comes out of the St. Louis Browns dugout with a contract, a legal contract, signed and recognized by Major League Baseball and says, this guy's a real player. Now pitch the ball to him. And of course, this guy was only like three foot seven, a tiny little guy holding the bat, and the crowd's going wild. They're going out of their minds. And the guy walked on four pitches, and he was immediately lifted for a pinch runner. The St. Louis Browns, I believe they won that game. But Bill Veck, I mean, he did all kinds of crazy things. He would have skydivers, you know, fall down on, uh, on, on, uh, during games, okay, in the middle of games. And he would hire people to do this. He would give away. He later went on to buy the Cleveland Indians. And he bought the Cleveland Indians after, just after World War II and immediately built a, a municipal stadium there that at the time it was the largest baseball stadium in Major League Baseball, sat 76,000 people. He broke every attendance record in Major League Baseball. The Cleveland Indians were drawing more fans than the New York Yankees, okay? Now remember, Cleveland at that time is about one-fifth oh, one the size of New York City, one-sixth the size. He would give away free nylons to the women when nylons were in short supply. Somehow we would get a supply of them, and that would be that would sell people on. There was times when he and he opened up a daycare center. Can you believe it? He opened up a daycare center in the 40s at Municipal Stadium in Cleveland so that moms could bring their kids and have them babysit so they could watch the games. He had more women coming out to games than any other team ever. And here's the here's the thing about his the way he ran his operations. He never advertised. He never told people what he was doing. He never promoted. He wanted to create the impression there was always something wild and crazy and fantastic going on at Cleveland Games, and you just had to show up. He was the guy that invented the exploding scoreboard when he moved, left Cleveland to buy the uh, Chicago White Sox at Comiskey Park. The exploding scoreboard in Comiskey Park was the first one ever. Now every ballpark in the majors has an exploding scoreboard. And he just promote, promote, but he would never tell people what was going on. Well, I may give you this whole history lesson on Bill Veck because I think a church should run like that. I think when the Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit wants to do, Jesus said... I want you to, I came that you might have life and you have it to the full. I think, and Jesus said, don't be drunk with wine that leads to debauchery. Okay, the Ephesians says this. It's in in the epistles. He says, don't, Paul said, don't be drunk with wine that leads only to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, you got to get high on something. Well, here's the, here's the thing that'll get you higher than anything and it won't leave any regrets. In the book of Acts, it says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Greek word for freedom there is eleutheria. We have a word in the English language that is much closer to eleutheria than freedom. And it's the word fun. I've never seen it in a serious translation because I think the translators are afraid of the implications. They think they're being irreverent. But you look up eleutheria, and if you know the original Greek meaning, the original meaning is the original meaning is where the spirit of the Lord is. There is fun. I I think that's what church should be. Now I would never give in to empty hype. I would never just you know put on a show to wow people. But I find that when we decrease, and I find when we there's another scripture that says and I'm quoting a lot of scripture because I don't like you to think that oh this is counsel's thing. It's not got to do nothing with me. I see it in the Bible. 
In the Bible, it says if you lift up Christ, he draws people unto himself. And if you know anything about the biblical Jesus, I don't know what kind of Jesus you, you learned about in Sunday school when you were a kid, or I don't know what kind of Jesus that you encountered but in some boring religious you know, ritual or whatever, okay? But the Jesus of the Bible, kids were attracted to him. The people that were most hurting, the rejects of society, the gangsters who were the who were the you know the, the 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 tax collectors, the publicans, which were politicians, the prostitutes, the fishermen, which were the lowest of the low. They all said that he teaches as one with authority, not like the Pharisees. The common people were attracted to him. You know why? Because I think he had that same spark that Amy Semple McPherson had. People were just drawn to him because there was life there. And I think when people are focused on Christ, especially a group of people, that all they care about is lifting up Jesus. And they don't care about pushing their agenda. They don't care about having things their way. When they really play, when they really pray, God, thy will be done, okay? I think that God answers that prayer. And when he starts taking over, oh, there's life there. There's life there. Think about it. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. So if you're in a church where there's no life, that's not Christ's fault. Whoever's, you know, running the show, they may think it's Christ, but if there's no life there, that's not Christ running the show. That's somebody's warped perception of, you know, what church should be. If anything, church needs to be life. And that's the life that he provided for all of us when he laid down his life. He didn't say he was the author of life. He didn't say he created life, although the Bible you know, teaches that. He said, I am the life. He says, I'm the life. I'm the life. I'm the, yeah, you ever hear that term, life of the party? I love that discussion he's having in the Gospels where it says, you know, you criticize John because, you know, he would lived an austere and humble lifestyle. And the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. And you say, here's a, uh, a glutton. Here's a, here's a wine bibber, as the King James says. Well, that's, that's Old English. The Greek word it says, here comes this party animal. Jesus. Jesus describes himself as a party animal. When you know the original Greek, that's what he's talking about. Now, I'm not talking about a party animal that advocates any type of sin, but I'm telling you, you look in the Gospels of the way this guy lived and the way his disciples followed him and the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. This guy just, when he walked into a room, it lit up. I can't imagine Jesus being, you know, boring for a second. And I think that's possible. I think when people really, when you really get to know Christ, when you really experience the power of his Holy Spirit, man, I'll tell you, I mean, from what I've experienced in church life and in my relationship with the Lord, I'm ruined. I, I couldn't go back to normal church anymore. I couldn't. And you know what's worse than boring church? You know what's worse than empty ritual? You know what's worse than that? People who try to create hype on their own. You know, oh my goodness, they got, I mean, I've been in church services. I mean, you know, they don't think the Holy Spirit's moving unless they got flash pots, lasers, and, you know, like uh, the, the elaborate stage show that's so elaborate that you got to be a professional to pull it off. I'm convinced there are some churches that are so slick in their operation that Jesus doesn't even have to be there. I like being in a church service where people are messed up. 
<laughs> you know? And nobody has it together. But they're so aware of their need of Christ that they're just pursuing him with all their heart. I think I think the Lord dwells in those type of services and in those type of operations. Like I said, I can give you all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't want to go to my church. But you know what? If you're if you're messed up or if you're broken or you're down and uh you know you want somebody to help bear your burdens, and that's another line we use a lot of. God didn't call us to solve each other's problems. God called us to bear our burdens, bear each other's burdens. That means you don't have to have it all figured out. But I don't have to have it all figured out to be able to stand with somebody and say, you know what, I'll weep with you. I'll pray with you. We'll go to God, and we'll trust and believe, you know, that he can, that he can uh, do something because he told us to cast our cares on him. It is nine minutes to 11. This is the first time I've ever done a radio show where I only had one commercial in the space of an hour and 55 minutes. And I'm not apologizing either. I got on a bit of a roll, and I didn't want to quit because I, I can't remember doing a radio show where, where I was, you know, communicating stuff that it was... Uh, you know, that is, that is more uh, dear to my heart that I feel more passionate about than what we talked about tonight. I mean, I love sharing the story of Amy Semple McPherson with you, but that wasn't just for the sake of a history lesson. You're listening to a guy that believes that anointing is very real, and the power of God can flow through people like that. And I am hungry for that, and I'm not going to be satisfied unless I see that. And And... That's that's what our pursuit at, at Christchurch is all about. ChristchurchOttawa.com. Check it out, okay? ChristchurchOttawa.com. I did a version of this whole Amy Semple McPherson biograph, biographical uh, presentation. I did a version of it this morning. It's not up on the podcast yet, but I think the one we did tonight and asked the pastor is a little more extensive and a little more because I was able to go more in depth because I not, didn't have to worry about you know, uh, parents, you know, worrying about their ki- kids and children's ministries, tearing the place apart while the preacher goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. See, you had the ability to, while you were listening to me, probably catch a wink or, <laughs> or so, you know, and you can listen to the podcast again. But I am not, and I'm setting this all up because I'm not apologizing for quitting about seven or eight minutes earlier because really you got, as far as content tonight, you got about two and a half hours worth of content because I often play music and we've got commercials and everything, and I decided to go whole hog and do the whole story on Amy and uh, you know uh, um, how excited we are at Christchurch to be stepping into that realm and being in relationship with uh you know, the, uh, a lot of the piece of people that are uh, the descendants of some of those original pastors that Amy uh, ordained back in California. they got about 2,000 churches in the States. They've only got 65 in Canada. It's much bigger in the States than it is in Canada. And most of the four-square churches are based out in uh, British Columbia and uh, um, Alberta and uh, more out in the West. There's very few of them on the East. But uh, we don't mind taking that torch that Amy lit and watching what it can do here in the capital region thanks for tuning in tonight i'm going to sign off got the got the cool fun music playing off in the background here actually you know what i want to do i started off the talk with amy saying you know every time i hear this song it reminds me of amy semple mcpherson i want to play mission temple fireworks stand again because that whole excitement and if you, you know that's a good thing to google too it's i think it's savoy brown yeah savoy brown and uh, uh um 
Savoy Brown and who on the steel go? Robert Randolph. Robert Randolph and Savoy Brown. And uh, Google the video of Mission Temple Fireworks, Dan. It's fun to watch. And we're going to end the program tonight. And uh, I'll tell you, when I hear this tune, I think, yep, that's what I think church should be. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Good having you with us. I'll be a human by the rocket And I'll go out with it